Bill is from France. Uh, good evening, I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. And uh, the introduction to the speaker is on the cards that you have, so I'm not going to give one. Uh, what I will say is that these cards are uh, more functional than that. On the back, there's a space where you can write questions for the speaker, and uh, any time during the talk or during the Q&A session, uh, just pass it down the aisle to someone wearing a yellow hard hat, one of the volunteers, and they'll pass it up and I'll process them and, and then uh, raise your questions with Peter at the end. Uh, we ask you to put your name on the question. So um, when I use a question, if it happens to be yours, I'll call out your name. It's helpful for Peter if you stand up at that point so you can see who to kind of direct his answer to, or we can all see who the amazing questioner is. And uh, then I'll go ahead with the answer and we'll see what happens. They're also good for putting your email address on the bottom, whether or not you have a question, in case you just want to get notices for these further talks as they go along. There's going to be one every month, uh, the second Friday, somewhere here at Fort Mason uh, for the rest of this year, and we hope further. And uh, an easy way to keep track of that is, is through email. And we'll send you uh, book references and things like that. Also, it's a place to where one advantage of doing a series is you can keep improving the production values or the way it works or the timing or uh, some of the uh, amenities. And so if you want to make suggestions or comments on there and hand it in, that also would be very welcome. They'll all be carefully read. Uh, there is one slight bug, which Kevin Kelly here has pointed out, which is that when you write something on here and hand it in, then you no longer have this wonderful schedule of the next uh, talks. So you're allowed and encouraged to trade uh, for a blank one with uh, the volunteer or someone next to you. Uh, I should mention that the next talk is the second Friday of January, which is January 9th. And it will be George Dyson, who's the pretty much foremost scholar now of, of, of computer history. And like Peter Schwartz tonight, is bending his thought in completely new areas and looking at uh, how very large-scale computing is going to affect very long-term thinking. And that talk is called There's Plenty of Room at the Top. That one will not be here, unfortunately. <laughs> this is a beautiful space, but we can't get it every month. And one of the reasons for the searchlight outside, besides making the rain beautiful, is to let you know where the venue is at Fort Mason on each second Friday. That one is going to be back by the very entrance uh, come, where you come into Fort Mason area. I think it's called the Golden Gate Room. Somebody will correct me if it's wrong. And uh, it's right at the, uh, at the very front of the, the first row of buildings as you come in. That's where George Dyson will be on January 9th. I think that's all we'll do right now. We'll come back with questions and good things later. In the meantime, please welcome Peter Schwartz. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, as you can imagine, it's a real privilege having Stuart as a friend and collaborator over the last several decades. Uh, Stuart remains one of the most important and creative assets of the San Francisco Bay Area, and it's a real treat for me to be here this evening as a result. <clears throat> Before I, I, I get into what I'm going to talk about, I'm just curious, how, how many of you were here last month for Brian's talk? Yeah, so this is a heavy Brian Eno crowd. That's great. Uh, 
well, well, that means you haven't heard me say things a hundred times before. Uh, some of my friends are out there and they're going to be asleep in about seven or eight minutes. Even though I've never given this particular talk before. But the one thing I wanted to say, <clears throat> uh, Brian, of course, is also a very close friend. And he talked last month about something called the big here along with the, uh, the big, uh, the long now. Uh, and he talked about uh, the example of having gone to a party in New York and, and feeling uh, uh, that the, the here was a very small here and that in his community he wanted to feel a big here. And just so you know, it's not BS. You go for a walk with Brian in his neighborhood, which Kathleen, my wife, and I, and Stuart and Ryan, and I'm sure Kevin have all done. And everywhere you walk, uh, everyone knows Brian. And Brian knows everyone. Uh, of course, every cute waitress you can imagine at every cafe. Uh, but uh, in every shop, at every bookstore, uh, everywhere you walk, um, uh, Brian is part of his community. Uh, he is not a reclusive rock star hiding behind walls and bodyguards. Uh, he is very much in the big here of uh, his community. So uh, he lives what he talks about. Okay. <clears throat> what I'm going to talk about is this idea of the really long view, and why? Well, for those of you who, who may not have noticed, out in the lobby, there's a book called The Art of the Long View, which I wrote a, a little over a decade ago, in which I set out some ideas about how to think about the future. And that comes from the work that I've been doing over many years, mostly with large organizations, lots of companies, some governments, some foundations, with Stuart and a number of other people in a company called Global Business Network, and before that at Shell, in which we had a process called scenario planning that was about taking the long view. But in the course of the development of uh, the Long Now and the Long Now Foundation and the kinds of things that we're engaged with, we've begun to think beyond what is the normal time frame of most organizations, which at best is measured in a few decades, more typically a few years, even uh, less in recent years. But uh, the long view for a lot of places is 5, 10, 15, maybe 20, 25 years if you're really farsighted. But we're really trying to take a much longer time frame. And so when Stuart asked me to give this talk, and we talked about what I should talk about, we said, well, you know, how do you take the really long view? If you're really gonna, what do you do if you really want to take the long view seriously? And so I set out to try and rethink the ways in which I approach the future uh, if one takes a much longer time frame seriously, centuries, r millennia maybe, uh, rather than a decade or two or three or four. Um, and so I'm going to try and set out some notions about how one approaches that problem. What do you think about and why? And how do you do it and what do you do about it as a result? And I take as a kind of fundamental premise that you know, the future exists, but it exists in our mind. The future that actually is, is the future we believe about the future. You know, what's going to happen tomorrow? Uh, you know, maybe someday in physics we'll discover that, yes, you can, you know, the future actually exists out there somewhere and you could travel in time. Uh, I believe I can, you know, it's not too hard for me to imagine that the past actually exists. But, in fact, the past is no more substantial than the future. It exists at the moment only in our mind. Uh, and it's irretrievably gone, uh, that moment a few seconds ago is gone, um, and the future hasn't happened yet. Uh, and so both the past and the future are there in our minds, uh, and we act only in the present based in part on our experience of that now imaginary past and that future that has yet to come to be. So all of this is really, in the end, about the present. 
It's about what we draw from the past and what we imagine about the future and how that influences what we do right now. Um, so that's what this is really all about. I asked the question then, so why bother? Why bother thinking about all of this? Well, I mean, at the most mundane level, the world can be a better place or a worse place in the future. You know, and put most simply, that's, that's the bottom line of it, is we want to make a better future. But what do we mean by better, first of all? Well, first of all, I mean it in a personal sense, you know, at the level of the individual, at least in two ways, a better material life and the usual sorts of things, health, security, comfort, pleasure, you know, the kinds of things that money can buy to some extent, as it were. Uh, and then a better inner life, if you will, purpose, community, sense of belonging, uh, intimacy, all of those things uh, that make a, a, a person feel like life is worth living. Uh, and so it is you know, the combination of those things in a personal sense. But better isn't enough if it's just, you know, life is pretty good for me, but, you know, screw the rest. Well, that, that's obviously not what we mean. What we also mean is better in a social sense, in a much larger sense. And here I mean one idea above all else over the long run, as opposed to in the world immediately at hand. And that is better means having more options for the future, creating more options for the future. Put most simply, it is leaving the future as good or better than we found it. Okay? It's about leaving the future, preferably better than we found it. And this is where a lot of what now follows comes from, because we may actually be failing at this task. Hmm? Uh, our forefathers, our, my, and my parents, gave me a great future. Hmm? And, and the future that I inherited was really fabulous. And I'm not at all convinced that the future I'm passing on to my son is a great future. And I think that's part of what we're worried about is that, you know, there have been other generations that have screwed up. You know, uh, the, the generation that probably created and then settled World War I, they deserve a lot of blame for what happened over the next several decades in, you know, Weimar and Depression and World War II and fascism and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, they blew it, and so they left a pretty bad future behind them. Uh, we're at risk of doing the same thing, uh, of uh, not leaving a better future for our children. So... Then the next question is, if that's the, what you're really trying to accomplish, is can you actually do anything about it? Does, it, you know, does, what, we do actually, does what we do actually matter? Uh, do, does human fate actually matter? And we had a little seminar last night of some of the uh, sponsors of this series and some of the Long Now people, and, and Danny Hillis uh, put it very well. He said, we might as well do something about the future because it's the only thing we can do anything about. And I mean, just uh, the, the most mundane level, that is absolutely true. Now, whether we can do anything about the future really depends upon uh, what our view of history is, hmm? uh, what, how we understand how and why the world happens as it does. And here, in part, it's how long is your now and how big is your here. Hmm? That's part of what one wants to, to take into account. Uh, and as I said earlier, it, it really is, in my case tonight, uh, centuries, maybe even a few millennia, not decades. And uh, how many of your old whole earthies? Yeah, I see some old hands. Old, old, heard. Uh, some of you may remember the name Dick Raymond. Uh, Dick uh, was the founder of something called the Portola Institute in the 1960s, and it was the kind of first institutional home for the Whole Earth Catalog. Uh, and Dick said something very wise. He said, and this was a while ago, he said, you know, if it doesn't take 50 years, it isn't worth doing. And recently, more recently, he said, if it doesn't take 200 years, it isn't worth doing. Uh, and I, I think that's actually a very important idea because it takes one's ego out of it. 
Um, so many, I, I, somebody just brought me a great idea for changing the world and they said, you know, but we've got to do it right now. This is, it's got to be done right now. You know, it's, this is the moment it's got to be done. And there's only one reason that this is the moment it's got to be done. It's his moment, you know, but uh, his now is very short, very short. Um, and the things that really matter take a long time. Uh, and as far as whether human agency actually makes a difference, uh, one of the kinds of acts of history that I enjoy uh, is virtual history. You know, asking the question, what if it had been different? Uh, there's a British historian, Neil Ferguson, very conservative, these, uh, uh, controversial and conservative, uh, wrote the book Empire, arguing why the British Empire was a good thing and why we ought to have an empire, but we're lousy at it. Um, so you Americans can't do empires, his hypothesis. But he wrote an earlier book called The Pity of War. And in The Pity of War, he asked a very interesting question. He said, what would have happened if Britain had not entered World War I? And he basically comes to the conclusion, interestingly enough, and whether you agree with him or not is, a, is another question, but it begins to address the question of human agency. And that is, he says, all right, suppose they hadn't entered the war. Well, what would have happened? Germany probably would have won and unified Europe and the EU, maybe a German-speaking EU, but an EU 50 years earlier. Uh, the Brits would have kept their empire. 600,000 young British men, creative energies and talents would have been applied to the further fruits of British society. Uh, Britain would not have been impoverished. No Weimar, no depression, no fascists, no Holocaust, no Hitler, etc., etc. Really bad choice to go into World War I, wasn't it? Well, of course, at that moment, one didn't see it that way. Uh, but it does say something about human choice. Uh, and how one frames the problem, one, how one frames the context, and what it means in the long run. I'm not arguing that he's right. I am simply arguing that it raises fundamental questions about some of the kinds of long-term choices that we make. Now, I would say that the history of the last millennium, and certainly the last probably even 10,000 years, suggests that what people do matters. That, by and large, we've made progress. I mean, just think about, would you like to go on to a dentist a hundred years ago? Um, and that, that, that you, you could answer that one pretty quick. On the other hand, think about this. My bet is you'd much prefer to go to a dentist a hundred years from now, too, uh, than today. Uh, human progress, I think, is very real. It's very real. It's been true for the last 10,000 years. It's been true for the last 1,000 years. It's probably been true for the last 100 years. Now we're beginning to question many elements of that, but by and large, more people live better today than have ever lived, well, in human history. Literally several billion people, despite the fact that several billion people live in desperate poverty, several, people, several billion people are living reasonably well. Now, in Brian's talk, he suggested uh, uh, various categories. He had the great pictures of the, the pessimist, the Pollyanna, and so on. Uh, now, in fact, Leighton Reed, one of the sponsors of these last night, said, said something really quite wonderful. said, denial is a special case of optimism. Uh, I, I really like that. Uh, uh, I, and I, I'm the other kind of optimist. I think of myself as a realistic optimist. I'm a realist optimist, but I am optimistic. Uh, you know, I was born in a refugee camp in Germany. My parents were concentration camp survivors. Life is infinitely better for me, my son, uh, you know, what I'm living through versus what my parents lived to. You know, it's real hard not to be optimistic when you have that kind of a context, and you, you've got to be a real cynic if uh, you don't see uh, life as progress after you've lived that kind of history. Uh, now, having said all of that uh, about you know, the, the fundamental impetus of history, you need a theory of history, why things happen the way they do. Um, 
And in, in this sense, uh, some of you are probably science fiction fans, uh, the, the enterprise we're engaged in here is a little bit like the Foundation trilogy and, and Harry Seldon. So you, know, you can think of that as the, 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 the long now of literature. Um, and, and our goal, like theirs, is to nudge the future a little bit. Um, now, in the title of my talk, it says uh, it's the art of the long view. So I, I am concerned about the methodology, how you actually think about it. And so that is one of my purposes, is to think about how one thinks about the future. Uh, I do something called scenario planning. This is a tool that's been around for a while, a number of decades. It organizations thinking contingently, contingently about the future. That's what it's about, thinking about different possibilities. It ain't rocket scientists, and I can say that with absolute authority. I'm actually a rocket scientist by education. This is not rocket science. Uh, uh, any of you who uh, get the New York Times may have seen a piece on the op-ed page on Monday by Phil Bobbitt on why the White House ought to have been doing scenario planning. Uh, what if we got it wrong in Iraq, just for example? Uh, and what we're going to do tonight is not scenario planning, uh, but most of the ways of looking at the future have something in common, and this is true for the kind of work that I do as well. It, it, Every time you look at the future, you want to figure out what's the question. You know, what are you trying to answer? Very simple idea. What are the long-term forces and how do they interact? Uh, what are the big uncertainties? Uh, how do these forces play out in light of these uncertainties? Uh, what might all that might mean and what should I do as a result of all that? So, in this particular context, what we need is a theory of long-term dynamics. Why do things happen the way they do? Some way to play those out and validate those theories. You need some kind of sense of what the consequences of all that are, uh, and then uh, what should I do as a result? So I'm going to actually try and go through that tonight and try and answer some of those questions. What is a, a way of thinking about the long-term future? What, how might all that play out, and what should we do? Uh, so first of all, theory of history. I, I get a lot of my sense of dynamic. I read a lot of history. It's, I read sort of uh, history and uh, science. Those are the two things I like to read. Uh, I see history as a long-run struggle uh, in which humanity is involved in this constant struggle to create human systems that help us avoid killing each other too much. Sometimes it's not a bad idea. Uh, exceeding the ecological carrying capacity. We've got to avoid doing that. We have to give meaning to life and enabling us to do great things. Those are the, 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 the struggle. You know, don't kill each other too much. Learn to live within your ecological capacities, uh, give meaning to human life, and be able to do really cool things. Build cathedrals, go to the moon, do great art, etc. Now, my hypothesis is not novel, it's, it's, it's a very obvious one, that over the long run, it is powerful and sometimes even good ideas that have been humanity's most powerful weapon in this never-ending struggle. Now, that's not a, a new idea. Lots of people have argued that. I mean, Hegel, etc., and philosophy, and many others, that, it, that really human progress is really about the progress of ideas. Uh, ideas about nature and how nature works. Ideas about how societies ought to be organized. And about the nature of human beings, and, and lots more. Uh, so it's really about the history of ideas. And if you think back historically, you know, we've got lots of examples from history. Imagine the, the, the first guys doing cave painting, right? and mixing pigments. I mean, it's one thing when you take, you know, a, a, a slab of, of kind of rough chalk and you smear it on the wall. But the, the someday, one day, somebody sat down and said, you know, if I take this 
ochre and this hematite and this charcoal and some chalk, and I mix it together. I can do cool paintings on the cave. And if you've seen, I mean, I, even though Lascaux that you get to see is, is a fake Lascaux, it's still astonishing and surprising and amazing. And think about the act of what it was like to sit there 14, 15,000 years ago. We were mining ochre for uh, pigments 42,000 years ago in Africa that somebody was sitting there mixing pigments and putting art on the wall. Uh, the first counting device was 37,000 years ago. The first tools, 40 to 50,000 years ago. We got stone block buildings uh, 10,000 years ago in Persia and in India. Uh, bow and arrow about the same time. Agriculture in Asia about the same time. The plow is, is happening about then. Uh, domestic sheep in Iraq uh, about the, that time, 8700 B.C. Now, all of that, interestingly enough, by the way, is, of course, triggered by global warming. Uh, global warming is the beginning of civilization, maybe the end of civilization, but it's also the beginning of civilization. It's coming out of the Ice Age, uh, being able to settle down, create agriculture, create cities and villages and so on for the first time, instead of fleeing the glaciers all the time. Uh, and before that, we were living in a very volatile climate. So, in fact, global warming triggered modern civilization. Uh, around 5000 B.C., we got our first cities, Ur, writing in Sumer, 3500 B.C., hieroglyphics in Egypt soon thereafter, the wheel 3,000 in Mesopotamia. Afterlife in Egypt comes along about the same time. Uh, Hammurabi comes up with basically the written code in Babylon in 1790 B.C. Monotheism, one of the interesting inventions. We'll come back to that later on. Uh, Amenhotep IV picks the god Aten as the sole god in 1000 B.C. Uh, and then, of course, you know, there are these great ideas that vanish. The Minoans, really remarkable civilization, truly Height of civilization, bad luck, however. They live on an island with a volcano. Uh, wiped out. Uh, now, our equivalent might be the asteroid. We'll come back to this later on. But, you know, you can have great ideas and bad luck, which is what happened to the Minoans. In, in this sense as well, uh, some ideas matter a lot in terms of what we imagine in the history. Cosmology actually matters in the long run. Uh, matters in the long run. I mean, in the geocentric universe, you did one set of things. Suddenly, when the sun is at the center and you're going around the sun, and you start answering those questions differently, you imagine different possibilities. The future looks very different. And, of course, once you discover that the sun is only one of many suns and that it's part of a galaxy and the part of the galaxies are many galaxies, and now you're into a real universe. It's a really big thing. Your sense of who you are is now very different. Now we're even at maybe multiverses, right? I mean, we, we thought about inner. Stellar travel, intergalactic travel, interuniversal travel. Whoa. Um, so cosmology actually does matter. I mean, you think about the spacesuit for going to another universe, I mean, where the laws of physics are different. Really interesting problem. Uh, now, uh, another list of these kinds of ideas, which is suggestive, is in a new book by Charles Murray, uh, Human Accomplishment. I don't pretty like the book. Uh, it's basically a statistical defense of uh, dead white European males. Uh, why they are the source of most good ideas. Um, not surprising coming from Charles Murray. But uh, uh, it's, the, his list of interesting ideas is interesting. And this is part of the list, and I'll give you the rest. But from the arts, artistic realism, linear perspective, artistic abstraction, polyphony, drama, the novel, meditation, logics, ethics, Arabic numerals, and then not yet on the list up there. The mathematical proof, the calibration of uncertainty. I really like that one, statistics. The secular observation of nature and the scientific method. Now, all of these he called 
meta-inventions, because they liberate other inventions. They enable people to do more with them. They are not static inventions as such. So, this is part of what we're talking about when we talk about the evolution of ideas. Now, in the realm of ideas, I, I, I want to talk about what we actually think about, not instinctual behaviors. Uh, so, the divinely endowed king versus the top dog in the tribe. You know, the guy who got there because he was bigger and meaner than everybody else, as opposed to the king who inherited his mantle from his father, who inherited it from the gods, and there's a whole story about. Hmm? So, it's that kind of difference. Agriculture versus hunting and gathering. So, if I plant these seeds, that thing grows, as opposed to, oh, that red thing on the tree is really cool. You know, different model. So, it's, it's that actually cognitive thought process, self-aware Developmental process is what I mean by the realm of ideas. And we're interested in two classes of ideas, powerful ideas and good ideas, and they're not necessarily the same. Um, powerful ideas persist and spread over centuries. That's one of the important characteristics. They, they take hold. They're infectious. Sometimes these powerful ideas cooperate with other ideas, and sometimes they compete, successfully or not, with other ideas. Science and technology mostly cooperate. New scientific principles create new ways of discovering new science. So you learn about optics, you make telescopes, you discover astronomy, and so on. So they feed on each other. Uh, in that world, of course, religion is simply the object of cultural anthropology. Uh, but science and religion mostly compete. Uh, and in that world, science lives inside a much bigger box that it cannot explain called religion. Uh, very different views of the nature of both of these and their relationship depending upon which way you approach it. Now, in terms of powerful ideas, we're also interested very much in evolutionarily powerful ideas. These increase options, and uh, they have to be many and diverse. So, if we really want a lot of powerful ideas, we need lots of them. If we want evolution, there isn't just one set of good ideas, and they need to be highly competitive. Now, of course, we also need to protect the options we already have, as well as to create new ones. But it's important to realize that powerful ideas are not necessarily good ideas. Indeed, very bad ideas can be very powerful. Uh, Consider them a kind of collective hallucination, if you will. <clears throat> France and 911, just to take an example, or a lot of the French. Many of you will know about a, a book that's very popular in France that explains 911 in very different terms. Uh, Kathleen will remember the dinner we had with a very dear friend, a prominent French businessman, uh, well-educated, travels the world, speaks English fluently, written several books, vice chairman of one of France's largest uh, companies, a man of enormous sophistication, married to a Korean wife at the time. Uh, we're having dinner, and he says, now, you don't really think that an airplane flew into the Pentagon, do you? So, what do you mean, Robert? He says, well, of course, it was the CIA sent a cruise missile. This was actually an internal war between the CIA and the Defense Department. Uh, that's what really happened. And he says, you Americans are under a profound delusion that this was the Arabs. They couldn't have done this. You know... And this is a man of, of profound intelligence. This is a bad idea, very powerful bad idea. Uh, <clears throat> the culture of victimization in the Arab world, the final solution, uh, Maoism during the Cultural Revolution, colonialism. Bad. Now, colonialism in, it, it tells you something about how bad ideas change. Because, of course, one could have argued, I wouldn't, but some would, that colonialism was a good idea for a while. But how did it end? It ended when we delegitimated the idea. We stopped believing in it. Somewhere in the 1930s, 
colonialism went from being a legitimate institution by which governments could organize the world to no longer being legitimate. And people stopped defending colonialism. It only became a matter of how quickly and by what means you decolonialized. The idea became delegitimated. And that's what happens to ideas and powerful ideas. They become legitimate. Oh, yeah, it was the CIA that attacked building in France. Or they become delegitimated, as in colonialism, for example. So, by the way, a good target for delegitimating right now is intelligent design. Just to put one on the list. Uh, another bad idea. Uh, so, good ideas, on the other hand, uh, improve the lot of the human hosts that host these ideas, and in terms of better, what I meant all the things earlier about better. And what we're really trying to do is increase the good options and help ho human hosts adapt over the long run. That's really what it's about. And good ideas are affirmed over the long time. They reveal reality. They're not a hallucination. Hmm? Uh, reality ultimately conforms to the ideas or vice versa, but they ain't the, the kind of collective hallucination. Now, for a good idea, it also has to be powerful. Hmm? So you need powerful good ideas. And examples are science, art, law. These are all powerful good ideas. Hmm? Now, if that's the case, so where do ideas come from? Why and how do ideas develop? Well, obviously one thing is they come from the ideas before them. Uh, we're sitting on a big mountain of ideas, right? Uh, we don't have to worry about where the original idea was, the ur idea somewhere X thousands of years ago in the past somebody had an idea. But we're, we're, we're beyond that point. We don't have to actually worry about that. Uh, but... The path dependency of ideas is important. That is the sequence of development of ideas. You can't get to molecular biology until you've had biology and chemistry, as it were. Uh, you need both to be able to create molecular biology. And so the history of ideas is a long one. Uh, and we're going to come back to that in terms of what we think we ought to be doing. Now, another source of big ideas, of course, is the problems to be solved. Uh, so where did the moon go when it disappeared? Uh, why did that tree grow? Or, you know, how are babies made? Uh, you know, why should I protect those other people? Uh, we ask ourselves lots of questions over human history. And that's where a lot of ideas come from, trying to find answers to those questions, the problems to be solved, some practical, some theoretical. Whoa, where did that thunder come from? Uh, where did those big lights out front come from? You know, were they going down or up? I couldn't tell. Um, <clears throat> Another important source of big ideas are the new tools. You know, you couldn't do a lot of astronomy till you had a telescope or microbiology till you had a microscope. Uh, but tools can be conceptual. Einstein needed modern mathematics to do general relativity. To get from special relativity to general relativity, a friend taught him Riemannian geometry. Until he had those tools, he couldn't literally develop the mathematics of general relativity. <clears throat> Many of you will have read recently about the work at Cal on the accelerating expansion of the universe one of the biggest discoveries of the last century. Well, you needed the Hubble telescope to be able to do that. You needed the Keck telescope. You needed supercomputers to count the, count the supernova and so on. <clears throat> so the new instruments, conceptual and physical, give us new ways of, 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 of developing ideas. And here, I'm not going to say too much more about this for the future because we can be pretty confident going future, you know, on well into the future that our conceptual tools will become ever more sophisticated, our mathematics more complex, more subtle, higher dimensionality, and so on. And our instruments, things like microscopes and telescopes and so on, cameras, will enable us to see much further, be able to see things that happen much faster, much smaller, in more dimensions, and so on. So we can be confident that over the decades ahead, 
Uh, we will see all of those kinds of apparatus, conceptual and physical of the sciences and technology, continue to get much, much better. Uh, Stuart and I have worked on the DARPA strategy for quantum computing. And we, the computer revolution has hardly begun. It's hardly begun. It's certainly not over. Um, we've, we're only seeing the, the first step. We're at the cart, you know, the horse and cart before the jet plane. And, and, and the quantum computer isn't even the jet plane. It might be the, the automobile. So think about your PC as horse and cart of the computer era. Uh, and then, of course, finally, the source of big ideas is, is the, the eureka moment of an individual hmm, who says, whoa, what a big idea. And a wonderful book, if you haven't read it, uh, is Einstein's Clocks and Poincaré's Maps uh, by Peter Gallison from Norton Press. Um, and it is how both Einstein thinking about time and motion and Poincaré thinking about maps and time, or trying to map time on the globe, came to the concept of relativity and absolute time at the same time mathematically in almost identical ways in two entirely different contexts, but within a few years of each other, operating one in Paris and the other in Zurich. Um, it's a wonderful uh, uh, tale of that eureka moment of an individual, but happening at the same time, and it says something about the context of ideas. So, all of that is to set up, in a sense, the, the theory of history and ideas. And now, where, where does that take us going forward? Uh, what, what do we do with that set of uh, concepts? Well, I said what I think is, for me, the, the tool that one wants to use conceptually for trying to explore the really long-term future, and that is the challenges and problems that we need to solve. What are the great big ideas that we need that we don't have? Hmm? that will set the agenda. So what I want to talk about now, basically, are the ideas that we need that we haven't got yet. Let's see, am I ready to go here? Yes, I think I am. All right. And that will help us shape some of the evolution of ideas. Uh, now, I think physical ideas, of which I'll spend a little bit of time, uh, are easier to deal with here because what we believe matters. You know, if I drop a brick, most of the time it will fall. And we get pretty confident about that. But... Uh, social idea is much harder because what we believe matters. What we believe about gravity doesn't influence gravity. Uh, what we believe about friends, neighbors, family, identity, self, uh, society actually does matter. Do we believe everybody has human rights? Well, then we might actually have human rights. If we believe slavery is appropriate, well, we'll have slaves. So what we believe actually matters. Uh, and that makes it much harder because reality is malleable in that, in that world. Reality in Afghanistan about what constitutes human rights not long ago was very different than what we believe about human rights here in America. Uh, reality in that sense is malleable. Now, a, an interesting way to think about this that I, I have always found very helpful was something that Paul Ehrlich said many, many years ago. And he came up with a fundamental equation that I think frames a lot of long-term challenges, I think, in a very simple, elegant, and articulate way. And he said, the impact of human activity, the environmental impact of human activity, is the product of three forces. Population, the number of people, affluence, how well they're living, and the technology they're using to live it. So, how many people you got, how do they live, and with what technology? And that tells you a lot about the environmental impact. You can have a few people living very simply with very little technology, not much impact. You can have a lot of people with a lot of technology that's very efficient and also not much impact. But a lot of people with crude technology uh, and trying to live high is a lot of impact. So, that's the, the basic concept. And you can begin to organize a number of fundamental challenges if you think about each of those elements uh, over the long term.
so how we answer each of the questions that I'm now going to pose uh, in terms of the Ehrlich equation, which just I equals PAT, P times A times T, population times affluence times technology. Just think about it that way. So first of all, the population. How many people? Well, of course, interestingly enough, what we're now seeing is that the, the, the near future is probably taken care of, i.e., we, 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 as we were talking about last night, our generation is probably the only generation in human history that will ever experience a doubling of the species in our lifetimes, except maybe the number one or two, you know, a couple hundred thousand years ago. Uh, they, they might have experienced. But we're the only ones. In, in all other generations, doubling took longer than a single lifetime. We're the only ones, since roughly 1950, we've doubled. We're not going to double again. We're the only ones who did it. Um, says something about our, how prolific we are. Uh, but it also says something about absolute numbers. So, th th in fact, the, the, the likely scenario for the next two or three hundred years is one of peaking and decline. And the question is, do we, will 200 years from now, will we have enough people? Not, do we have too many people? But if you really think about the long run, you can come up with kind of four different possibilities. One is a world of very high populations, 50 to 100 billion people, lots of people. That's a population density in which basically the whole world looks like Switzerland. Okay? The whole world. Think anybody or Europe, so, you know, France, UK. The whole world looks like, you know, Europe at maybe at its best, if you want to think about it in that way. But that's what the whole planet would have to be like. That population density on every square foot of land on the planet. Uh, for it to reach something on that order of magnitude. Second, very different future is a world of, say, a few billion people, one, two billion, sort of like now, maybe a little less, maybe a little bit more, but about like now. But one can easily imagine a future, of course, in which it's much smaller, a million people. You know, that might be a bad future, they're the survivors, or it might be we just got down to an ultimately very low level of population and it's highly sustainable. We got, you know, 100,000 acre haciendas to live on. Um, and then, of course, for completeness, one has to look at the scenario where the answer of population is zero, nada. Okay? We could wipe ourselves out in the next 10,000 years, and there's a long history of that. So those are the, the four population scenarios that one wants to think about. Very big, sort of like now, quite a bit smaller, and zero. The next question one wants to answer is the question of human nature. Is bad behavior the result of evil or poor mental health? Put most simply, was Hitler evil or sick, right? Very different view of what the human condition is and where we're going to end up as a result of the answer to that question. You know, is, is the answer better mental health or stronger religious values? To solve the future, do you try to become more adept at psychology or do you pray more? Um, and it makes a big difference because if it is mental health, well, then you can imagine you solve this problem in the long run, hmm? And that poses one kind of challenge. But if it's evil, then that's going to be a struggle forever between God and Satan, and we'll be dealing with it 200 years, 500 years, 5,000, 10,000 years from now. It'll still be on the agenda. And those are two very different visions of the future. Is it all about God versus Satan, or is it all about solving the problems of better mental health? Uh, not claiming I know the answer to that question, I have my own view, but that's a different question. Related to it is the issue of reason versus faith. Is the future going to be world, mostly a world of faith? Hmm? And if you'd look at the numbers today, you'd have to say that's where we're headed. Uh, the, 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 the guys with the faith are having more babies. 
so the demographics are on their side. The reason, by the way, in the United States we become much more religious is all the moderate sects stopped having kids and all the really militant sects kept having babies, lots of them. Um, you know, the Southern Baptists and the Evangelicals are all having kids and all the Methodists and Presbyterians stopped. Um, it's true. It's, if you just look at the numbers, that's, what, what, that's why we have a, a really religious society in America. And the Europeans stopped having babies too, but the Muslims haven't. Uh, and so the people of really passionate faith are the ones who are growing in numbers. Uh, so it's not implausible to imagine a world of... In fact, if you actually look at this, now this is a really wonderful example of a forecast that I don't think can happen. If you look at the growth of rate of Mormons, by 2085, everybody in America will be a Mormon. Right? Uh, and that's not a criticism of Mormons, it's just the, the, the size of Mormon families. You look at the growth rate and just project it out roughly 85 years and 100% of the U.S. population will be Mormon. I don't think that's going to happen, but, you know, who knows? So you could have a world mainly of faith. You could also have a world mainly of reason. Where we finally decide religion is really kind of a, an interesting artifact of history and it's time to move on, which is where most of the Europeans are today. It's part of their cultural heritage, but... 14% of Europeans go to church uh, as compared to 75% of Americans. Uh, or you could have a world both of reason and faith in the distant future. Any of you read science fiction, there's a wonderful novel called Hyperion, in which the distant future, the Catholic Church is still really at it, and it's a wonderful set of politics built around the role of the Catholic Church. Uh, thousands of years in the future. They've been around for thousands of years. They might still be around for thousands of years yet to come. So... Uh, but you lead to a very different vision of the future, depending upon how you answer that question of reason versus faith, good and evil versus mental health. And it leads you to a question, when you think about good ideas and powerful ideas, was God a good idea? Uh, if, there's a wonderful book, The Biography of God, if you haven't read it, I, I recommend it. Uh, certainly God was a very powerful idea. It's mainly a Western idea. You know, the Tao is not the monotheistic God, and Buddha wasn't the, the, the monotheistic God. This is really our God. Uh, uh, early on, it was certainly, almost certainly a helpful idea. You know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, all those kinds of good stuff, and, you know, God will smite you if you don't. But unfortunately, uh, you, God also was about smiting non-believers, and there was an awful lot of smiting going on. Um, and even still we'd still do an awful lot of smiting in the name of God. Now, that might lead you to the question of maybe it's more harmful now, the idea of God, unless you're into the world of good and evil, in which case you have to recapitulate this in every generation. Every kid has to get on board with God and Satan and all that. And so God remains as a good idea. So you come to very different conclusions, again, in terms of your theory of reality here. Another big issue that we have to solve is citizenship and governance in mega-societies. You know, uh, I, I, I really enjoyed the San Francisco mayoral election right now. I don't live in San Francisco. I live in Berkeley, where, you know, we, we, we recently had a shift to the right in the, the city council. The, the uh, Trotskyites drove out the Maoists. And uh, <laughs> the Leninists have now got the center. But in San Francisco, I, this was actually a great election. It was, it was really, you know, it felt like democracy really at its best. You could even argue the, the recall. I wouldn't, but you could argue the recall was an example of that. Uh, but it was democracy to scale which, where people could really relate to their communities, to, to the choices. That the, the, There was a meaningful sense of democratic participation. Uh, gosh, it's really hard in America to feel that at a national scale. 
and essentially impossible so far to feel that really at a global scale. How do you create real global citizens? How do you create institutions at a global scale? When we created the Constitution, it was 3 million people, 13 colonies. Europe might be a more interesting example. Here they're creating a new system of governance with 500 million people, highly developed, and in a continent that was used to killing each other in very large numbers uh, for most of the last couple of centuries. Uh, and really, the European Union is about peace and war, not about economics. And that's what most Americans don't realize. It's about the French not killing the Germans and vice versa. That's really what it's about. Um, that is, it's about war. It's about talk rather than killing. It's about binding the Germans and the French together in ways that keep the Napoleons and the Hitlers at bay. Um, and, you know, we had Kosovo recently in Bosnia. So, that they, you know, the, Europe, the murderous Europeans have their ability to do this and, uh, and still do, and that's what the European Union is all about. It's about peace and war. Uh, but we haven't developed those kinds of mechanisms at a global level, and I think that's one of the really big problems. How do you develop that? How do you build countries, and how do you fix broken ones? And, you know, we have that problem, now we broke it, and now we've got to fix it in Iraq. So we don't know how to do that. Uh, another big problem. I think one of the really big ones for the long run is that we need an equivalent of the rule of law for human relationships to ecosystems. We developed the rule of law to organize and constrain relations among people. Law defines and assures our basic rights, tells us what human rights are, it prevents the strong from dominating the weak, uh, and embodies a sense of fairness. Uh, it embodies a view of the human condition, uh, divinely endowed rights, for example. And this was really brought home to me a, a few years ago. Uh, Kathleen and I and Amory Lovins and Hal Harvey were traveling in uh, what was then the Soviet Union. Some of you are old enough to remember the Soviet Union. Um, and we were in Moscow uh, just after Gorbachev had come to power. And late one night we were meeting with a, a Soviet dissident, a, a rock musician. And I asked him the question. I said, how would you know that Gorbachev's revolution had been successful? And he said, they would publish the laws. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, right now, power is arbitrary. If I read a book and they don't want me to read it, they can put me in jail. And I didn't even know it was illegal to read the book. Uh, law is about breaking the tyranny of arbitrary power. And right now, our relationship to ecosystems is arbitrary in that sense. We don't have a theory of law, an underpinning of relationship to those ecosystems. Uh, and sustainability may be the objective, but we don't know what that really means except for increasing options. Uh, you know, maybe the, you know, the, the, the uh, I think it's evangelicals for the environment have the right answer. You know, it's thou shalt not destroy God's creation. Well, that's a kind of statement of law. If you believe in God and you believe in that, you, that can be a kind of relationship. Maybe they've got the right answer. But history tells us that conflicts arise among people for three reasons fundamentally. Honor, fear, and interest. It's about honor, it's about fear. It's about interest. If you want to read about it, Donald Kagan's book on the origins of war gets into this at length. Now, the rule of law in a conventional deal sense deals with the first and the third. We can deal with honor. We can deal with interests with respect to law. But fear, fear is really about in exceeding our carrying capacity, not having enough, not having enough. Uh, and a wonderful book that Stuart Brand just turned me on to and, and everybody at GBN is called Constant Battles by Stephen LeBlanc. And it's about the history of exceeding our carrying capacity and going to war as a result. And that has been the normal human condition. Uh, so I'm not really worried about the near term. I think we can deal with a lot of our short-term problems with technology. But it's the really long run where we need a fundamental new sense of the equivalent of the set of law 
uh, the rule of law. And this I consider one of the great intellectual problems that we need to address. The, the, the idea, the really big idea that we need, that we don't have. I think another interesting one is the knowledge, is knowledge organization and access. You know, we're just learning so much. I, when I was an engineering student, uh, I was an astronautical engineering student, uh, but I had to learn a fair amount of computer science. Uh, it was, you know, we still had slide rules, but we were the first to have an IBM System 360. Well, it was a really big deal. It was really cool, and you, you punch cards and all that stuff. Uh, so any engineering student learned computers. Well, I, I've been part of the National Commission on the Future of Engineering as part of the National Academy of Engineering called Engineer 2020, and we reached the conclusion that uh, an educated engineer of 2020 not only needs to learn his own discipline, not only needs to learn computing, but he needs to learn life sciences. I took no biology when I was an astronautical engineering student. Now, if you want to be a literate engineer, you need to understand the processes, mechanisms, models, and metaphors embedded in life sciences as much as you do computer sciences if you're going to be a capable engineer going forward. And that's just going to keep happening more and more and more. Now, fortunately, I think uh, a lot of this will get taken care of through brute force by AIs. So this is not a problem that I worry too much about. Now, there are a number of science and technology questions on the, the real kind of uh, nitty-gritty science side that we need to address. And there, there are five that are at the top of my list that will pose the problems for the, the, the long run, that if we solve, we'll have a very different kind of future. And number one, and the most obvious, is the control of matter, energy, and biology, uh, making it increasingly a matter of choice. Now, that has been the trend over the last several thousand years. But the question is, do we really get hold of the control of matter at the atomic and subatomic level? Do we really get hold of energy in a fundamental level? And do we really manage to get control of biology? The future is very different if that happens. And I, my guess is that the answer is yes, and that, that all of those will happen in the matter of the near few, near few centuries. The next one is understanding the long-term and short-term dynamics of climate change. Uh, climate change is probably the biggest crisis we face in the near future as a civilization. Uh, we may be seeing, seeing global warming. I doubt it. More likely is that we're going to see warming leading to abrupt cooling, uh, a possible another ice age. Uh, that I consider a more likely scenario, but I, not clear. And many of you may have seen the report in the New York Times earlier this week that maybe the human ag agriculture 8,000 years ago already began to produce enough CO2 to begin to change human climate, and we have been actually warming the world for the last 5,000 years and avoiding another ice age because of putting CO2 in the atmosphere. So maybe we want to burn all those hydrocarbons and prevent another ice age. Maybe we've got to get rid of hydrocarbons really fast and prevent another ice age, and I don't know which it is. Um, and we've got to answer that one real soon. And that's a really big one, because getting that one right matters a lot. Uh, the, the impact of a, an abrupt cooling would be to lower the carrying capacity of the world by probably 50%. Hmm? That's about what the impact of it is. So that's the second one. The third is real life extension. The world's going to be very different depending upon what happens there. We are going to square the curve for sure. What that means is the more and more people will live out to the maximum of human lifespan today, which is about 120. That's set by the cell doubling process. And you, the maximum lifespan that we've ever measured anybody is about 121, 122. There's a 116-year-old we know of now in Japan. And we will certainly live more healthy, youthful lives all the way up there. More of us will do that. But the interesting question is, do we break through the 120? Uh, 150, 180, 200, immortality. Uh, very different nature of the human species if we think about measuring our lifespan in many centuries or 
essentially endlessly. Think what that does for the human psyche. And is it crazy? Well, in the last century, we, we basically doubled human lifespan, uh, human life expectancy, not lifespan. We went from roughly 40, 45 to 85, 90. Hmm? Uh, we doubled it. Think about it if we just doubled it again in the next century. Hmm? You're already at 160, 170, hmm? well beyond the normal maximum. So it isn't doing, in a sense, any more than we've already done. The next one is cheap, clean energy. world is very different if we get cheap, clean energy, if we don't. And here I want to take the really long view. What happens when we really run out of hydrocarbons? We've got probably another century of oil and gas. We have another 500 years of coal. But so far, we haven't got any alternatives to hydrocarbons. Hydrocarbons are cheap and easy. They're dirty. That's part of their problem. So we need to get a clean alternative. We can't probably solve the world's problems with solar, with wind, or with nuclear. So there's nothing on the horizon today that will power the world when we really start to run out of hydrocarbons. Uh, and if you think in multi-century terms, that's what we need to be thinking about. We don't understand the physics of fusion. There are all kinds of problems with nuclear. The energy densities associated with solar, I mean, just how much energy falls on the Earth, uh, the amount of energy in the wind and so on that we can need to power a world of several billion people at least. Uh, we don't know what to do. This is a really big one. So figuring out what happens after hydrocarbons are gone, 500-year challenge. And then the final one is spaceflight. Are we a, an earthbound people or are we spacefaring? And we don't know the answer to that one yet either. Cheap spaceflight isn't accessible. First, so we don't know how to get there cheaply. And we've just discovered radiation turns out to be a bigger problem than we thought. Will we have space colonies? Uh, will we be able to go faster than the speed of light? Are we stuck in our own solar system? Or are we going to be galactic or intergalactic traveling people? Do we meet ETs or not? Are we alone in the universe or not? That's a very different view of the future. And do we protect ourselves against the asteroids? Uh, Rusty Schweikert is going to talk about this in a couple of speeches. Stuart, when is Rusty's talk? March. March. Uh, he's going to talk about this subject. Very important problem. Uh, one that could you know, be the wild card that wipes out everything else. So those are you know, sort of my five candidates for the really big problems. The control of matter of energy and biology, long-term, short-term climate dynamics, life extension, cheap, clean energy, and the ultimates of space flight. So, what are the possibilities for the long-term future? Where does that leave us? Well, we can have a high-population, high-tech world. Uh, you know, lots of people living well using very advanced technology. That's one possible scenario. Another one is high-population health. Lots of people living miserably. Hmm? That's also possible. We don't get control of population. Uh, Low-population utopias. You know, the 100,000-acre hacienda or the primitive survivors of, say, the asteroid collision. Um, and then, of course, the world in which we are earthbound or galactic and beyond. So what does that leave us in terms of what we should do? Well, and this is wrapping it all up. First of all, I think we can help guide the ideas of the future. We can have a debate and discussion. Stuart and I were part of a process both for nanotechnology and hydrogen developments of laying out possible pathways in the future. When we did nanotechnology over a decade ago, it was bad science fiction as far as most of the scientific community was. And even George Bush signed an act creating the National Office of Nanotechnology only two weeks ago. Um, and this was an idea that went from the crazy fringe to the dead center of science and technology in a decade. That's a very powerful act. 
So helping frame the kind of pathways of those ideas into the future is something else we can do. And these discussions that we have here in San Francisco, this is one of the great centers of intellectual development of the world, the San Francisco Bay Area. We helped shape those ideas. Nanotechnology began here in the Bay Area. It is one of the great centers of it. You may have seen in today's paper, uh, they picked 30 innovative companies in the world, the, the guys in Davos. Two of them are nanotechnology companies from the Bay Area, Nanosys and Nanomics. Uh, helping shape those ideas here is a very powerful thing to do. Focusing on what do we think. I mean, I've laid out my candidate ideas of what are the big priority problems, helping to shape that agenda. How does that actually happen? Well, it's these kinds of conversations that we're doing here. Some of you who are from the sciences will know the Gordon conferences that are taking place for many years that have helped shape the sciences in chemistry and biology and so on. These kinds of conversations shape the agenda over the long term. So, I, you know, we can meet here from time to time uh, to produce more and better ideas, uh, help find the pathways forward, help figure out what the really big problems are, where we should be headed now. It's the conversation of the long now, if you will, so what I'm basically suggesting is we need more and better ideas. Let's start and sustain that conversation. Then let's act on what we learn. And if we do all of that, then there's a chance that we too will leave the future better than we found it. Thank you very much. Okay, Peter, we got some questions here. And more coming, I hope. Um, one from Alice Toey, is it? Want to stand up, Alice? Thanks. Question is, what strategies can you recommend for helping the developing world to think with more of a long view? It seems like in many places, meeting the immediate needs of survival greatly overshadows any long-term thinking. That's a very good and very hard question, to be honest. And, 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 and I wouldn't presume, frankly, to be able to give a simple and easy answer to that question. That's, a, that's something that people have worried about for a long time. What I would say is I think that, that the conditions are different in different parts of the developing world. And the answer is not the same everywhere. The challenges of some of the countries in Asia are very different than those from Latin America and are still different from those of Africa or Central Asia. I think those societies that have reasonably effective and functioning governments... Uh, have at least the possibility and prospects of engaging in precisely the kind of uh, debate, discussion of what the kinds of right strategies are uh, and might make progress. You know, Brazil is a good example of a country like that. Mexico is another example. South Africa, another example. Uh, but much of the world, most of Central Africa, big parts of Central Asia, have either corrupt or incompetent or essentially no governments. Uh, Liberia today, effectively no government. Uh, those parts of the world need something very different. And the answer for those parts of the world is not at all obvious. It's, it's not simple, and I, and I don't claim to, uh, that I know what the right answer is. So I guess my view is that it's very much what happens on the ground in those places. But the first thing you need is a functioning society, a functioning system of governance. If you don't have that, you can't get anywhere else, I think. Uh, and so... The great challenge, for example, in Africa is recreating a fabric of society, recreating a fabric of nations, of governments that know what to do, are competent and not corrupt and not principally about violence. Uh, and we're unfortunately a long way from that in most of Central Africa. But that's the, 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 the real challenge, I think, in places like that. In Brazil, Mexico, Venezuela, Colombia, there I think the challenges are very different. They're much more conventional, education, infrastructure, uh, traditional rule of law, and so on. 
uh, honest courts, honest government. Uh, and, and the answers are fairly straightforward and very simple. And you see examples all over the developing world of countries that have done a pretty good job of that. You know, Costa Rica being a great example for it. So uh, the picture of what to do when you have a reasonably functioning government, I think, is pretty clear. It's the other cases that are much harder. And Peter, you were in the Peace Corps in, I guess, West Africa. Do you Ghana, still, yeah. Still recommended as a thing to do? Uh, yeah, I, I served in the Peace Corps in Ghana in 1968. Uh, yeah, in fact, somebody just asked me that question. A, a good friend's uh, daughter is about to go off to Senegal. And so uh, she asked me that I think it was a good idea. And I said, yes, if you want to learn a lot. If you want to change the world and help Senegal, forget it. Uh, but if you're going there because you think you're going to learn a lot and come back a better human being for it, it's a great experience. If you think you're going to fix the problems of the developing world as a Peace Corps volunteer, very unlikely. You may make a marginal difference, and that may be worth doing, but if you think you're really having a significant impact on their societies, I don't believe it. Do you see that? I'm sorry for following this, but I think there's a thread here. Do you stay in touch with other Peace Corps uh, volunteer veterans? Yes. There's a whole society. Uh, how many PCVs in the room? There you go. Okay. I'm not surprised. Peace Corps? Good luck. Ghana 7. I think the, the, the Peace Corps uh, alumni are an amazing uh, subset of people out there that know each other and have a sense of being able to make impossible things happen in impossible circumstances. And they come back and they get into public office and they get on school boards and things like that. And they're uh, uh, very effective. So I, I think it, it feeds around a lot. Okay, here's a question from Jim Alexander. Want to stand up? Thank you. Hello. Uh, you expected this from Peter. Intelligent design, why is it a bad idea? Uh, he adds, which dimensions are we at the edge of discovering? Well, you know, I could be wrong about that. So let me just say right at the outset, I could be wrong. I, it's, it's, it, I, I stated a personal opinion. So uh, I, I will grant that uh, those of us who are basically atheists, of which I would put myself, uh, don't need a theory of intelligent design to understand the evolution of uh, the, the history of life or the history of the universe. Uh, that having been said, we could be wrong, and that science might sit inside a much larger box that is simply inexplicable in the terms of science. And I'm prepared to admit that that could be true. It is not the world which I see personally. Uh, having said that, I believe that, in fact, the intrusion of that mode of explanation into the sciences is neither constructive for religion nor for science. Uh, if, if, if people want to be believers, I respect believers, and I, I, their cosmology, their view of reality, uh, is appropriate to that context. Uh, I, I don't think you need to bring that context to explain physics, for example, or biology. Uh, it's enough, you know, there's a great uh, a cartoon a number of years ago, many of you will have seen it, it showed two professors at a blackboard and it's full of equations and so on, and, and then finally about halfway through the equations, it says, and a miracle happens here, right? Uh, <clears throat> well, that might be the case, you know, and, and that might be true, and those of us who don't see it that way might in the end have to accept that, yeah, a miracle happens here uh, as part of the equation. But at the moment, I don't see it as necessary, and I find it problematic where we try to make science work in the context of religion and vice versa. But, so that, now, would you, I'm, I'm happy to take a response to that if you'd like. I, I guess I'm confused by what you mean by intelligent design. I think intelligent design is having more of an industrial 
Oh, no, no, I mean an ideological term. I don't mean, oh, better products. No, 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 no. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, miscommunicated here. Intelligent design is the new word for creationism in uh, education. Uh, so instead of uh, advocating creationism in t being taught in school, instead of Darwinism, uh, we want to have intelligent design. See, there really wasn't a God as such that was actually pulling the strings. There was some kind of intelligent design in the whole thing, and that's the evidence for some higher being behind it. No, no, it's not a better toaster. Uh, <laughs> Unintelligent design is a, another whole subject. Okay, here's one from Gina, uh, sorry, Rocanova, is that correct? Thank you. Uh, this is topical, Peter. Uh, California's voter initiative system, parentheses, ooh, a law guaranteeing for, funding for puppies. I love puppies, I'm for that one seems to foster an institutionalized, short-term, narrow thinking. Is it possible to reform the system, or do we need to scrap it altogether in order to think long-term? That's a great question. I, I, I think uh, the referendum system, the way we've now operated, has its problems. Okay? I, I kind of like the idea of the referendum, but the issue is not so much that we have the system, it's how people use it and how we manage the kind of debate or lack of it. So I, I would actually put the problem not with the referendum system as such, but the politicians, Howard, Howard Jarvis being a perfect example, at Proposition 13 being the extreme case in modern California history of, you know, of really, I'll strangle myself till you die. Uh, <clears throat> and without any consider, you know, it solved one short-term problem, the problem of the elderly and their taxes, property taxes, by creating a vast problem for the future. Okay? The problem was not that we could vote on it, the problem was the communication process, the pol politicians, and that no politician got up and said, this is a really bad idea, and had the courage to do it. And since, in the last almost 30 years since its passage, no one will get up and say, that was a really bad idea, and let's change it. So it isn't, I think, the issue of the referendum. It's the politicians who, mo with almost no exceptions, I'm, I'm trying to, well, actually the one who, tried to do long-term thinking and caught a lot of flat for it, of course, was Jerry Brown. Um, and he became Governor Moonbeam as a result. Hmm? Here's a uh, profound one from George, looks like Canciani. George Canciani, thank you. Um, neatly printed, helps. Will the evolution of our physical bodies fall behind technological advances? That's a really interesting question. Uh, I think it's already happened. I think that's a done deal. That is that uh, I think human evolution is now a function of human choice, uh, accidentally or consciously. Uh, that is that what we, are go what we have already done and what we're going to do, I mean, it's already happening. In fact, we were discussing this <clears throat> just the other day, and I think it was one of my long now colleagues, but it may not have been. It might have been Kevin, you said this, uh, about what happened in the early days, in the first few centuries after we got... Uh, 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 organized agriculture. Uh, that is, human stature went down because we stopped eating the kinds of th things you did when you were hunter-gatherers and we started eating a lot of corn. And uh, too much corn and too many sugars and so on. And for several centuries, we actually shrank. Um, and then diet got more diverse and so on and went back up again. The, the point is simply that we have already been the agents of a lot of human evolution for the last 10,000 years. Now that we are more conscious of it and can actually manipulate and, and, and enter the human genome in a variety of ways, it's a done deal. 
Uh, we're going to shape our future evolution. There are going to be multiple human species on the planet uh, well before the end of this century. Uh, and we're going to see a proliferation of uh, types of humans. Uh, and even if we don't want to do it in America, it's going to happen all over the planet. Um, so if you think about thousands of years, there will be many forms of humans, and they will be mostly of human design. Paul Billings, right over there. Do you believe we can re-engineer ourselves and our nature to ensure more ideas and a better future in your terms? Well, re-engineer, that's less clear to me if one means that in a very literal physical sense. It's, it's obviously clear that we have already as a society, we've created institutions, education, higher institutions of higher learning, research organizations, uh, financial incentives to, to develop new ideas. I'm a venture capitalist. You know, you make a lot of money with new ideas. Uh, you get powerful with new ideas. Uh, you get girls with good ideas. You know, I mean, good ideas are very powerful. So we have lots of incentives with good ideas. And uh, so we have created institutions already. Now, if you're asking the question of whether we're going to, in a sense, re-engineer the human mind to make it more powerful, I think the answer is yes. I think in several important ways. I mean, one, just simply cognitive powers. Memory, simply the ability to absorb and retain more information. And I think that, by the way, is not distant. That's quite imminent. The, the drugs that are now being developed for treatment of Alzheimer's for a person who is not deficient in some ways is likely to improve particularly short-term memory. A uh, variety of cognitive techniques that I think are likely to improve. And then finally, perception. So part of what we deal with is the world that we see and hear. But we know that's only part of the world. We have instruments that take us beyond that, ultraviolet, infrared, and so on, large, small. I would not be surprised to see us re-engineer our perceptual suite so that we can see things that we cannot see today, hear things we cannot hear today, feel things we cannot feel today. And I submit that it's a different thing to experience those than as to see it on a screen or read about it or look at the data field. But imagine what it's like when you know, your eyes can see across a much wider spectrum or you can hear across a much, much wider frequency range uh, or you could see at a much greater distance, thousands of miles, for example. Uh, so it's very, I, I suggest that we'll be thinking differently when that happens, and I think those are, are inevitable. So I think we will get more intelligent, have better memory, and increase the range of human perception. And I think all of those will happen. Those may take a bit longer than life extension, because I think there's some hard intellectual problems in there, like how you see. Okay, here's the rest of that question, away from <clears throat> Anonymous, who may or not wish to stand up. With the increase of ideas and options, do we also need idea killers and option killers to avoid an overflow? Person, one, we, we got a lot of those. We don't really have to, you know, we got so many idea killers and option killers. Uh, but what we do need, actually, is, is intelligent critique. Because, there, as I said, there are a lot of bad ideas. You know, there's lots of bad ideas. Uh, simply having an idea does not make it a good idea. Uh, and so I think what you need in a society is, in fact, a really open debate about ideas uh, uh, and, you know, a healthy level of criticism. And part of the problem of the Soviet Union was you could make ideas official. Lamarckianism became an official ideology of science that transformed it. I mean, part of our problem now is we have faith-based science policy. You know, we have faith-based foreign policy. Yes, the Iraqis will love us. Uh, and we, we have faith-based science policy. No, stem cells are a bad idea. And so on and so on. Uh, and... You know, that clash is, I think, very real. Uh, so I think 
those kinds of transformations of the realm of ideas, uh, I, I, I think as long as we have an open society and we do not let any one particular sect dominate the crit- critical realms, then I don't worry too much about it. Okay, here's the rest of, uh, of Paul Billings' question. He says, how do we hold futurists accountable? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, first of all, you have to ask the question, does anybody bother listening? I mean, you're accountable to what? I mean, it's one thing for me to be up here flapping my mouth, but it's another thing for any, anybody to take anything seriously. Uh, I've been doing it for 30 years. Uh, 31 years. Uh, gosh, I... Paul Hawkins out there. We wrote a book about some of my early work. And, and, and I, I think Paul and I would both agree it's an embarrassment. Um, uh, and, you know, we learned a lot along the way. Uh, I think the way you, you hold, it account, hold me accountable is go, look at what I said. Uh, did it make any sense? Did it hold up? Did it have any value over the long run? Did anybody gain anything useful from it? Was it in any way helpful? Uh, did thinking about things before they happened in any way influence anybody to do anything better as a result. Those are the kinds, you know, for me, look, I mean, I, I'm infinitely curious about the future, but I'm in this business because I want to make a difference today and make a better future. So the question is, did any of that happen? Mm-hmm. And that's the real measure of accountability. You know, did we, lead, did we make better choices as a result? Not did you get the future right. Getting the future, if you have multiple scenarios like I do, it's easy to get the future right. It's much harder to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the easy part is getting the future right. The hard part is getting anybody to do anything. Uh, and so, you know, if, if you get anybody to do anything, then you can be really held accountable. See, here's one from, uh, one from Fiona. Fiona here. Thank you. What good will it do us to live 120 years and beyond if there will be no pensions and no jobs mm-hmm. to compensate for the lack of pensions? Well, what it will mean is you're going to have to work much longer. I'm serious. Uh, two years ago... Uh, three years ago now, actually, retirement age in America went up for the first time in history. Uh, it went up again each year. Now, there are two reasons it's, that's happening. One is your 401ks are now 201ks. Uh, <clears throat> uh, so that people have less money, and they're beginning to get the sense that they're going to have to live longer. But the other side of it is that people are healthier, more vigorous, smarter, more able, longer. They don't want to retire at 65. They want to keep doing stuff. They want to be more vigorous. They want to start new careers. One of our partners uh, is Napier Collins. He's 75 years old. Uh, he retired from Shell at 60. He then retired from his second company at 64. Then he helped us start our company. Uh, and there's no imminent sign of retirement. Does he need the money? No. He has a passion for what he does. Uh, and... Uh, that's what an awful lot of people are finding in, as they're getting older. They have a passion for, it may not be what their career was, it may be for something else, and they do it. Some people have to work longer, so on. Uh, but people could have said that, you know, in 1910, what are people going to do if they live to be 70? And the answer was, that was a really important issue, and we didn't really solve it until we got to Social Security um, in, you know, in the 1930s. So we created new institutions. We created new institutions of higher education. We changed our laws about retirement and so on. And I think that is what will keep happening. I think this is one that we will adapt to, and it actually will be a huge virtue, not a vice, uh, that people will live longer, be more creative, more productive, contribute more to society. Uh, Our families will have more generations engaged. Our children will learn from their grandparents in ways that they haven't. Uh, So I I think this is a, a great boon to society, not a step back. And just as... You know, the fact that my mother-in-law is now um, 87 years old and uh, got the chance, because we started a family late, to impart a love of painting 
to my son, who's 13. Um, and sadly, my mother, who died at 65 and didn't make it to 87, got to impart only nothing but her genes to uh, my son. Okay, here's two related ones. I'll get both questioners standing. Jeffrey Perone. There he is. And uh, Jim Cornwall. Jim Cornwall still here? Hiding. No, okay, there he is. Um, <clears throat> Cornwall's question is, uh, do two questions. Can I have some of your water? <laughs> Thanks. In the long now, we're very patient. In your experience, are the majority of corporations viewing long-term planning as, one, financially responsible and pragmatic, or, two, some kind of moral imperative being pushed on them? And the related question from Perone is, transnational corporations are already global institutions, although flawed. How do you think the Internet will help create new ones, for example, smart mobs, that make a difference? Let's take the first one. Uh, say it again. Uh, in your experience, are the majority of corporations right, right. doing okay. long-term yeah. planning is... So, well, first of all, the majority of corporations don't do long-term planning. Let's just be clear about that. That's the great majority. You know, it's probably... Uh, and, and, for, and, and for those companies, long-term is measured in months, maybe a few years. Uh, and that's probably 75% of companies, something under that, three-quarters, two-thirds, really don't do any serious long-term thinking. They might do a bit of a capital investment planning that goes beyond... A, a couple of years, where they're going to build the next factory or something to that effect, and, and a bit in their R&D function. But very, very few companies do really serious long-term thinking. Um, so I would put it at somewhere like 25 to 30% of the total population of relatively large companies. What are examples of corporations that do long-term thinking and well, do it well? Shell, mm -hmm. that I used to work for, uh, BP, Toyota, Honda. Um, Is Wirehouse still on that list? They did. I'm not sure they do right now. I, I, I'm not close enough to know, to be honest. Uh, DuPont. How about among governments or government departments? Well, the, the, the best long-term planning government in the world is Singapore. There's no question about that. It's the best-run company on the planet. Um, uh, Singapore is a uh, very well-run company. Extremely happy shareholders. Uh, uh, about six million of them. Uh, and very happy. Uh, but... To answer the specific question, look, the truth is that most companies, to the extent that they do planning, are driven by profits. They're driven about making money. Uh, there are a few beyond that who take a moral imperative seriously. Uh, most would say they, that they do, but they don't think about it in a very serious way. Most would say, we don't want to break laws. We want to, don't want to do immoral things. We don't want to do, harm the environment. We don't want to hurt workers. We, you know, so most would say that they don't want to do that, but very few take that idea and go, much deeper and more seriously in thinking about what does that really mean, how does it affect their behavior, how does it affect their operations, how does it affect their long-term future, what are they going to do to be seen and to actually be, in a sense, a responsible organization. Uh, and th those you can count uh, as a handful. You know, you can name most of them. Uh, they're, they're not, and they're fairly obvious, and there aren't, you know, among smaller ones there are many more, but among large ones there are really, you know, maybe a few dozen that fit in that category of, say, the Fortune 1000 around the world. And that, that might be exaggerating when I say a few dozen. Uh, it might be a dozen in that category. Here's a question. Well, I didn't answer the second question. Well, the second question was, um, corporations are already extremely uh, global, though flawed. Is the Internet going to bring new global uh, institutions that make a difference? 
well, the Internet already is a global institution, makes a difference, but right, right from the get-go. You know, I mean, it, uh, in fact, it was uh, Gorbachev, in fact, you were at the dinner, uh, Stuart, when Gorbachev was here, and somebody asked him, well, why did the Soviet Union end? And he said, oh, it was the PC and the satellite dish. You know, uh, it was when our people suddenly had access to the world. Uh, so, you know, this is a nearly universal solvent of transparency. Um, and the Internet, I, I think, is, you know, irreversible in that respect. Here's a question from, is it Steve McKinney, Stu McKinney? Stu or Steve? Steve, thanks. I haven't seen this question since 1962. What is the future of work and leisure? Remember leisure? <laughs> the leisure society, right? Yeah, the leisure society, the leisure revolution. What are we going to do with all our time? And the answer is, you know, I think that was a flawed idea, the idea of a leisure society. <laughs> Well, it, 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 one of the things that we learn is that our um, uh, desires expand to fill the available resources. Mm -hmm. um, um, we didn't have to get big houses. We didn't have to get second cars. We didn't have to have nice vacations. Um, you know, that, that was a choice we made. Um, and we developed the income to meet that standard of living. Mm -hmm. Nobody made us go to the mall. <clears throat> um, you know, uh, Nobody made us get SUVs. Uh, and as a result, we now have a much higher need to work. Families have a higher need for income. We have a standard of living that we have aspired to that requires that. Uh, now, there are people who choose otherwise. And as a result, they have leisure. Uh, they work part-time. They work in varieties of ways. They, they don't work as much as... Others of us do. Now, few of us are fortunate enough to work we love and we you know, work passionately because it's things we really care about. You, know, you can call Stuart on a Sunday afternoon, and I know where I will find Stuart most Sunday afternoons is in his office. Is that because I'm whipping him as a colleague? No, it's because somebody has just sent him something incredibly interesting to read and he's got to respond to it, and you know, he wouldn't dream of not being there. Hmm? So there are some people who are fortunate in that way. But for the rest, they feel an obligation because of their lifestyles that they've made a choice about. <clears throat> well, the unemployment rate is now around 6%. The peak, you may remember, uh, in the last recession was 9%. Before that, the previous peak was around 10 or 11%. So this is actually as low as we used to think it was going to get to, and then we got it down to 2%. Uh, I think that current unemployment is, a, is a largely a cyclical phenomenon, and that within a fairly short order, as it was only a few years ago, anybody who really wants a job will be able to get a job. The question is not whether people can get jobs. The question is, can they get jobs that matter, jobs that earn them sufficient income, jobs that generate a sense of value, meaning, and purpose in life, and income adequate to what they aspire to. That's a different question. Jobs as such. Yes? Well, the, you know, the historical idea of, of, of kind of a, a, a you know, gardening and self-development and so on. Well, well but now you think about how many people go to school part-time. You know, the, the, there's a huge self-development market of very, very many sorts. Hmm? Uh, and so I, 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 that, that has actually been true. That has been one of the big hunks of leisure that has actually developed is self-development. I think that is true. 
what we mean by work and what a job, what is a job, is changing. Okay, uh, Paulo. I forget how to pronounce your last name, Paulo. Unintended consequences plague prognostication. It sounds like in Latin. <laughs> how do we model the effects of technologies we don't understand? For example, what does the scenario look like for the negative playout of genetic engineering? Hmm. <clears throat> it's, it's a great question. And the answer is, you, you've posed, I think, one of the most difficult intellectual problems. I, the p reason we often get these things wrong is precisely because the context itself is changed by the phenomena that we're trying to describe. And, and you've named, I think, a wonderful example in terms of genetic engineering. Stuart and I were talking about, when I, I posed a, a, a kind of example, he told me I was wrong, he's probably right, but could we dumb down biological DNA so we end up with kind of a gray goose scenario that comes out of a kind of decay of natural DNA because human beings have so mucked about in the DNA of nature? Well, Stuart made the argument that, no, in fact, it is, there's an enormous amount of self-correction in the system and that, yeah, you may get some disruption, but eventually it will come back. That after even massive die-offs, we still get... Remember, you were trained as a rocket engineer. I was trained as a biologist. Yes, he, <laughs> uh, rocket engineers do gray goo all the time. Exactly, we get it wrong. But having said that, uh, I think, frankly, what it really requires is an act of en enormous imagination. To really try and imagine what it would be like uh, if... Things changed fundamentally. I mean, it, some of you will know that uh, Stuart and I and a few others worked on a film uh, called Minority Report, in which we described the world of 2050. And we consciously excluded almost all the biological developments we thought were going to happen in that time frame because th we thought people would find it so weird, so crazy, that it would become the whole story and would dominate everything. It would wipe out all... If you saw the movie, there's only a little bit of kind of weird biology in there of some moving plants and so on. All the rest is fairly conventional. We do a lot of other technology, but no really advanced biology. It's quite unrealistic. Uh, but because we thought it would so uh, freak people out, frankly, in terms of we actually got serious about what we think is going to happen. Um, we're getting down to the last couple questions here. Here's two related ones, uh, starting with Chris Rand. Chris, where are you? There he is. Um, other than the Long Now Foundation, what are some other long-term looking thinking organizations? Mm. And another question from Anonymous, who may choose to stand. It's hard enough to organize people into voting in an election. How do you organize them into taking the long view? Mm. <clears throat> well, organizations, you know, I think there are a lot of interesting organizations. Uh, Santa Fe Institute. Uh, would be an example of somebody trying to break new ground in science and uh, trying to raise fundamentally interesting questions. A lot of, you know, good research organizations. Uh, Woods Hole, just to take one, which is doing a lot of work on abrupt climate change. Uh, I think a lot of, let me call it, activist organizations that uh, I think have traveled things that are really quite fundamental. I think the best, among the best, is Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch that have really changed the context in which we, you know, confront human rights around the world. Witness is another one, started by Peter Gabriel. Uh, so I think of, you know, organizations that are doing good research, breaking really fundamental new ground in unconventional ways. I mean, there's the, all the conventional research at universities and so on, but the guys who are really out there on the edge. And then others who are doing uh, what I think of as really good works, but in a way that is fairly simple and focused. I mean, Amnesty has one purpose, to expose human rights violations and end torture around the world. 
And, you know, they've been enormously effective as a result. So I have great admiration for those kinds of organizations. Okay, the last question is a, actually a process question which we'll close with. Uh, it's Eric Nerlich. Eric here, there he is, thank you. It says, can the Brian Eno talk video be posted for the several hundred of us who didn't make it in to hear him? And the related question, of course, is uh, the people who didn't make it tonight for the traffic and the weather and so on, do they get to see a video of, of Peter Schwartz? The answer is they will all be posted in various streaming forms, both in audio and video, on the Long Now site. They aren't yet, but uh, stay tuned. And also we'll hope to see many of you come back uh, next month, January 9th, for George Dyson. And I hope he'll be around too, Peter. Thank you very he much. He should be great. <laughs> Thanks a lot.